I'm going to just take five minutes yeah. to see how, like, if I can ascertain how, like, whether there's a path forward for me to teach myself calculus. I mean, you can do it. God, this is a good idea. Do you think that I'm hijacked? The, the thing that I kind of considered when I started trying to train myself to dunk a basketball was that I might be hijacking this podcast as like a like a, a self-improvement podcast. Uh-huh. And now that I'm doing it again, I'm like very aware of it. Um, so I was wondering if maybe you would also, now that like I'm- Learn I'm... calculus with you? Yeah, for sure. Oh. One thing that occurs to me is as the kind of person who doesn't do my homework right when it's assigned- I'll often get to the show notes, like, the day of that we're going to record. Yeah. And if I also have homework, (laughs) those are going to stack on top of each other. Well, we're also reading a book every two weeks. Yeah. It's a lot of homework. I just turned this podcast into school, and I feel bad about it. Gonna have a lot of fun. Gonna hit a hum run. Littlest league possible in the littlest league possible. Gonna make a big splash. Hello and welcome once again to Tater Tots Book Boys Edition. I'm Tim. I'm Duncan. And later on we'll be talking about uh, the the epic YA baseball fantasy novel Summerland by Michael Shabon. Um I listened to the last like 17 chapters of this podcast on audiobook um so i know for sure that that's how you pronounce his name because he said it a bunch of times uh yeah and he read his own audiobook yeah it was very good he did the voices and everything i did not listen to it but i did see that he read his own audiobook i appreciate that he did the voices but we can talk about that later uh when we talk about the book uh but first we i I, there's a somber report this week i'm gonna uh drop in a a a pitch what what do you call it like a i'm gonna pitch down the Mm -hmm. the the pointer sisters theme music because it's a somber uh add some inches to your vertical It's a somber occasion because I, uh, well, I fell short of my goal this week and I also hurt my toe. Not fantastic. No, I would say. it was bad. It was bad period of time altogether. I, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm in the process of, um, questioning why I exercise, which is getting in the way of, uh, my exercising. Um, I got really burned out and then I was like, what is, what am I even like working towards, uh, like philosophically, like why do I exercise? You know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then that 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 kind of gummed up the works and was um, capped off by me whacking my toe against the wall as I again continue to just run into a wall uh, over and over again with a piece of chalk in my hand <laughs> in broad daylight. 
I'm sorry that you hurt your toe. Yeah, it's and fine. I'm sorry that you're experiencing an existential crisis. It's fine. It's I I feel like I've, I've I'm coming to a resolution. Probably uh-huh. probably work out again tomorrow. All right. I'm so. Yeah, I guess that's okay. You got to keep doing this because you so desperately want to dunk a basketball. Yeah, that's that is a big part of it. Um, the the very satisfying feeling of just like knowing that that I got two points. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean when the ball leaves your hand, it's, it's two, a guarantee. It's two points. It's not a. It's virtually a guarantee, but you can mess it up. You can goof a dunk. That's true. You can miss. It's much easier to goof a a field goal. For sure, definitely. Um, Like I don't know the way they changed that game. I mean, everybody loves three pointers because they're worth more. But it's really not as much fun to just like stop from very far away. Like I, not that it's not cool, but it just kind of loses its coolness after a while. Is my thought on it. It reminds me a lot of the various changes in baseball that have been implemented because of analytics i think it's very similar right because they realized all of a sudden that three points is worth more than two yeah and so they've kind of gone out of their way it it feels like an unnatural intrusion into the natural rhythm of the game yeah yeah i was gonna uh i was gonna congratulate the the statistical sort of analysts of both sports for discovering that uh the most points is optimal um yeah that's <laughs> it feels obvious in retrospect in both cases way to way to go you guys but i think it is interesting to think of it as like a disruption because i don't there's nothing that's like like both of these games are ultimately just that they're games they're like contrived and stuff um, yeah so it, it is odd to think of something as but it is it's it's not aesthetically pleasing i think at the end of the day is what it is Maybe I I don't. I don't think it's so bad. I just think like in the ultimate version of basketball, I have I have like a half-baked theory on sports mm-hmm. that they should kind of follow their own natural orders and the more complex the rule, like the infield fly rule, the further from the platonic ideal of sport it is. That's a good example. So I think like you know, in 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 a computerized perfect version of basketball, the further away from the net you were, the more points you would get. So, you know, it would be like two points, 2.1 points, 2.2 points, et cetera, all the way back to half court or however far you want to go. Mm-hmm. Um, because then you would still get the advantage of shooting a three-pointer, but you wouldn't stop at an arbitrary point. Mm. You would want to shoot from far away without shooting from a very specific distance when a more advantageous shot is clearly in front of you. Yeah, and I think that that also solves a problem of, like, I mean, it's always better to shoot a three than a two in the sense that you'll score more points that way. But I think if you, like, keep going up to, like, half court, say, like, half court is a five point, is worth five yeah. points. Yeah. It might change the strategy a little bit more to where, like, you can really think about, like, how 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 easy do we, do we want this game to be, you know? Like, if we're down by whatever like two points then we can plan our entire game plan out around getting a slam dunk which would be very easy and then if you're down by like three points you know it becomes we like our challenge is a little bit greater i guess that's already the case but i feel like more variance helps it somehow like you can pick and choose more it would lead to more strategy in football you can kind of pick and choose more than you can in yeah 
that's what I was thinking of. Football has a lot of um, numbers of points that you can get on different kinds of plays. Yeah, there's like a there becomes like a, a, a I don't is that what calculus is? Yeah, I think you can use that metaphorically. It's not literally calculus, but it's a it's a you could say yes. There is a calculus in the decision making. I should figure out what calculus is. Maybe that'll be our next podcast segment. I don't hate it. Teach myself calculus. <laughs> calculus is so hard. I know. That's why I never bothered with it. Calculus is just like the study of curves. But do you think that my uh, do you think that my life would change if I taught myself calculus? Like, do you think my outlook on life would change? Yes. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I took calculus. Did you ever take calculus? No. I regularly think about calculus. Why? Like, when does it come up? It just comes up in a lot of... I mean, it's good for metaphors. When You know, (laughs) I'm always talking about diminishing returns and asymptotes and Mm. that kind of thing. These are calculus... yeah, they're all related Concept. to and in the broad family of calculus because it's all about studying things that happen continuously, right? Continuously compounding interest, mm. curves, and uh, things that approach infinity. Are the fundamentals trigonometric in nature? I don't, I forget, like, what is trigonometry? As trigonometry is the study of uh, uh, triangles. Yeah, and all the cosine and cosine stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I think that comes into it. Yeah, it must. Uh, it's mostly about functions, though. It's about equations and graphs. It's more related to algebra, it feels like to me, although I could be wrong. Do you know what Coursera is? Have I talked to you about Coursera before? I think I must have. No. Coursera is this website where, like, sometimes at a premium, universities can um, basically host their classes on this website. Um, so in theory, you can like kind of hack your way to a college education. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how, like, I don't know. I, I, the, I use, I use it so I can access the university of Pennsylvania, modern American poetry community. Um, right. but even th- then I'm kind of over that community. And so maybe we could move on to using this tool to teach ourselves calculus. Um, here are some classes. Calculus single variable functions part one. I'm sorry. Calculus single variable part one functions. Single yes, variable. That sounds... Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. There's also single variable calculus. That's just like one thing. So functions sound. The first one sounds roughly analogous to a class that I took in high school called functions. Mm-hmm. That was essentially a pre-calculus class. Okay. Would you feel? Because my instinct off of that is to think that maybe it's best to start with pre-calculus. But how do you I feel? mean, I wouldn't be opposed to it. Well, we can enroll for free and it starts today. Okay. How long does it take? Mm, let's find out. There is, there should be like a thing. Oh, here we go. Syllabus. Uh, week one, introduction takes one hour. Week two, review of function takes one hour. Week three, something called Taylor series takes two hours. Week four, limits and asymptotes takes three hours. Four weeks. Four, it's a four week course. Oh, that's that's very doable. Week one uh, is uh, one eight-minute video, two readings, and one quiz. Okay. 
Maybe I mean, listen, it's all about self-improvement. This is not an excuse for you to stop learning to dunk a basketball. Oh, absolutely, absolutely not. But one thing that I think has come up in the past couple of weeks is um, that the add some inches to your vertical has revealed itself to be like more of a routine thing and is less interesting to talk about week in and week out. Right. There's, <laughs> there's not that much to say. So it's, it's possible um, that we could just like have a quick check in about it and then maybe we'll talk about calculus and then baseball. I think talking about calculus could be really fruitful and interesting, to be well, quite honest with you. I mean, if we're like, I I would think of this as being just like a very small class size. <laughs> well, I mean, the the thing about calculus, as as I'm sure you know, like the old philosophers were all mathematicians and philosophers, um, especially higher level math is so interesting philosophically it lends itself very easily to higher level discussion i'm into it yeah i'm gonna send you this link Um, awesome all right we'll have to do it we'll have to do some calculus it only like if we're also consider continuing to read a book and continue to do this every two weeks i mean we could just do i mean this course would take two podcasts yes so i mean that's that seems doable yes yeah and roll for I have free. No objection. All right. I don't remember how we got on this subject. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is pretty unexpected development. I'm sorry that I did this. It took us way off the beaten path. I'll listen back to the tape, and I will let you know how we arrived at this very strange conclusion <laughs> to add some inches to your vertical segment. I had no segue prepared for this, uh, but it's the tot stove. I was going to say that maybe the pilot light would be broken because of the broken down labor negotiations. But no, it sounds to be working in excess. That's a... Oh, no. Oh, oh no. <laughs> the kitchen's it's on, on fire. too high. <laughs> yeah, the entire... The tot stove is, is far too hot. It has lit the building, the proverbial building, on fire. I don't really know what I mean by tot stove anymore. Well, yeah, it certainly was easier to determine that when we were covering ongoing baseball happenings. Right, when there or were like on-field happenings. Yeah. Um, but this is, I mean, it's just, it's something else entirely that's on fire. Uh, and it is the possibility of uh, Major League Baseball in 2020. Personally, yeah. I said, let, let it burn. There's going to be baseball. Um, let's uh, go through this. Yeah. So... Uh, back in March, uh, when Major League Baseball canceled the season in the uh, in the midst of spring training, uh, the players' union and the ownership uh, union, though they're not technically a union, the union of Major League Baseball owners as represented by Commissioner um, uh, <laughs> Rob Manfred, yeah, uh, sorry, agreed, yes, they agreed to some terms... Uh, uh, regarding the nature of a shortened or canceled season, um, at and... the center of I'm sorry, yeah, go ahead. If go I'm ahead. Wrong, but I just have a question. Uh, at the center of it was the idea that the players would receive prorated contracts for the season, right? Meaning their pay would be scaled to the amount of games that were played. Yeah. So this is the most pertinent point, um, but that that's actually a concession on the part of the players. So oh. they agreed, right? They all signed contracts to receive you know, however much money every year. 
Yeah. Um, but obviously, this is an unusual circumstance, and they got together, and the players conceded that they would only be paid um, on a per-game basis as if their contracts were to be paid out, depending on how many games they are. Uh, they play, they would get paid. If they played half the season, they would get half their contract, and et cetera, scaled. That's not really mm-hmm. how their contracts work. Nobody's paid by the game. Um, but they made that concession mostly in exchange for getting a full year of service time. So every player mm-hmm. moves one year closer to free agency, regardless of whether the season is played or not. Um, so skip forward a couple months. Uh, baseball says, we're going to come back. Coronavirus be damned. Um, but they said, the one thing is that we cannot afford to pay the players at the rates we agreed on in the March agreement. Um, what's come out about that is that there was some misunderstanding. Um, the owners believed that the prorated salaries they would pay would be in the event that fans were allowed back in the stadium. Uh, the players felt that that had not been made clear. And also, it's kind of an outrageous thing to think that if baseball were to be played, there would be fans, um, considering the national climate. So the owners are making the case that they're going to lose money on these games being played anyway. They need further concessions from the players. So the ownership and the players' union have been going back and forth, um, making counterproposals about how many games they want to play and at what rate. The players' union has been steadfast in refusing to go below 100% of the prorated salaries, but they have been willing to play more games, um, whereas the ownership group wants to um, pay them less than than their full portion of prorated salaries at some varying number of games. Uh, And all of their offers to the union have been essentially the same. Um, you know, they've varied the percentage, 60, 70, 80% in the number of games, 80, 100 games, um, but ultimately never actually making any movement, just kind of shifting the numbers around. Mm. Um, so what happened this week is finally after another one, it was like the fifth or sixth offer that was essentially the same. The players union, uh, head Tony Clark put out a statement said, all right, you're, it's clear you're not really willing to negotiate. So we are we are no longer going to submit a counterproposal. Um, this doesn't mean there will be no baseball because the commissioner has the power to institute a season of uh, a length of his choosing, of course, playing paying the players at a full rate. It's widely expected that he's going to do this for a very short 50-game season um, that would limit the amount that the owners were responsible for because they would only have to pay the players a prorated amount through 50 games. Um, and they would be forced to do that by the agreement that they they signed in March. So all very sad. Um, a lot of uh, anger between the two sides. Bodes very poorly for the upcoming CBA negotiations after the 2021 season. And 50 games is not enough to really determine which teams are good or bad, in my opinion. Womp, womp, womp. Womp, womp, wompity womp. Wasn't the MLB supposed to come with its proposal by the end, like the end of today to end of day today? Another proposal? No, no, no. Like I, I believe if I remember, because I, I have had a hard time keeping up with all this. Uh, yeah. What I made sure to do several times was to read Tony Clark's letter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, uh, the the sort of I guess ultimatum that he put on it was that. MLB should 
um, give its decision on how many games it would be by the end of business today. But that seems to have come and passed. Well, the ownership group put out a a statement soon after Tony Clark put out his that said, we're also done negotiating. This is going to be in Rob Manfred's hands now. Hmm. So I think that Tony Clark would like to know how many games there are going to be so that the players can start getting ready. But he doesn't really have. Yeah, he doesn't have the authority to to demand that. Uh, I um, have gone through several emotions over the past few days about this. Um, but first being that I uh, think that Rob Manfred is a puppet of the ownership. Um, and, I mean, that's literally that, his job. I don't think yeah, he's yeah. a puppet. I, his job is literally to represent the owners. Right, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I kind of arrived to. Um, yeah, I don't have anything more to say on that, except for that, that that was the sort of spiritual journey that I went on. Um, uh, I didn't. What I didn't understand was that um, Manfred's ultimate decision would uh, was contingent on the players being paid uh, the full rate of whatever. Yeah, that's why the the season that he's going to institute is going to be very short. Yeah, and that's why. That's that's ultimately the sense in which players won this negotiation. It doesn't seem like anybody's winning, least of all fans, uh, frankly. Uh, no, I, I don't think the players see this as a win because they're going to get less money than they could have gotten if they had agreed to one of the other contracts or one of the other offers by the ownership. But they were very firm in their stance that the owners should not renege on their agreement to pay them their full prorated salaries. Hmm. So I, I don't think that they've won these negotiations, but... It also doesn't seem like the owners have won. No. I, I mean, I think the, the owner's strategy here is to make the players look bad. Um, there's been a lot of talk about how important baseball is um, and, you know, that this is going to be a uh, a thing that we can all rally around in a difficult time for America, which... Yeah, is probably true to an extent, but I think most of that is kind of being bandied about as a way to make the players look selfish for not biting the bullet and taking even less money than they've already agreed to lose. Um, meanwhile, for some reason, like shifting the blame away from the owners, and it seems like it's not working to the American people's credit. It seems like most people kind of understand that this is uh, a strange negotiating tactic, but of course... Both sides have the opportunity to lose money uh, in order to bring baseball back, but ownership wants to absorb all of the benefits and none of the risk, which is not really their role in a management structure. They get all of the benefits every year and none of the risk. Players accrue all of the risk normally because they're the ones who could get hurt, perform badly. Um, Owners never have any of that. Their baseball team is going to continue no matter what. Um, but now that they're in a situation where they might lose money, they've decided to try and try and push that on the players again and get the public on their side. It and like all the other like economic crises that we're having in this country at the moment are really, and I, I hate to be blunt about this, but they're kind of showing, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to have like a big like condemnation of capitalism on this podcast 
although we may have already done that several times by identifying ourselves as communists. Uh, right, we had a whole 50 episodes <laughs> or so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it, it, it does seem like a failure of an economic system um, overall where, um, you know, one, one, one portion of the people engaged in the economic system expect to never have to take a risk uh, and have maybe gotten too accustomed to, you know. Raking in the dough. Yeah, with no consequence, or hard, hardly any consequence. I think that baseball teams should be civically owned institutions. I agree, honestly, I do, and I think that uh, it would. I mean, at least very selfishly, it would get baseball probably back to a place where I would enjoy it more. Um, from uh, from like truly from just like uh, an aesthetic perspective, because. Well, maybe not even like I like civic entities are pretty, um, pretty much in the in cahoots with like corporations. So like if if the pirates went back to being owned by the city of Pittsburgh, I'm sure that like Giant Eagle and stuff would still advertise uh, on the same scale because um, it yeah. would still be baseball. Sure, I guess ideally it would just be that the economic incentives would be counterbalanced by uh, civic incentives. That as yeah. much as you want to make money, there's also um, a desire to field a good baseball team, to also, I don't know represent your community, to do lots of things that that sports teams can do. Also, if this, if 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 citizens are buying in, like mm-hmm. if if citizens are required to buy in, then c- c- citizens could also reap the benefits that are currently falling only to uh, a few people. Yeah. It's true. Um, you know, like how the Pennsylvania lottery, which is basically the same thing as a sport. Um, I mean, not quite, but it's a sim- but you know, that, 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 that's, it's, it's essentially a game of chance and the community benefits. It benefits older Pennsylvanians every day. Um, I think other state lotteries go to other things like education and stuff. Um, what I'm saying is that, that that revenue could go to nice things like roads and highways and stuff. Yeah, that might be good. Huh. Could be good. <laughs> if you think about it. Yeah. Probably would result in a lot of like uniform advertising though, which people would be mad about. Definitely. And ultimately, I mean, I don't think that the citizens would want to pay the players for not playing either. So I don't know if it would solve this particular issue. The, yeah, there's, I, there's a larger the, problem. Yeah. The big problem, I think, right now, one of the biggest problems we have is the novel coronavirus. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it, it had an impact on the MLB draft, which uh, also occurred last week. Uh, traditionally, the draft goes 40 rounds. Um, but they agreed this year, as part of the same March agreement, to limit it to as few as five rounds. And they decided to go with five rounds. All of this in an effort to save money for the ownership who didn't want to pay all those extra bonuses um, to all those draft picks. So a very abbreviated draft. Uh, It was interesting, of course, because none of the players got scouted very much. Most of them had about two practices um, before everything got shut down. So a lower information draft, uh, which was kind of fun. I always enjoy watching the MLB draft, which I know makes me a weirdo. 
I mean, I feel like I am accustomed to not watching it at this point. Yes. Uh, and so I, because that's so long and boring, frankly, mm-hmm. um, but I enjoy it. Yeah. I bet that a, fine, a five round draft would probably be okay. Especially in this, like, I didn't watch it because I'm accustomed to not watching it. But I feel like in this climate, this is probably one of the only sports activities that I would accept happening. Or, like, styles of sports activities. because Drafts? Yeah, because it basically happens in everybody's houses. Yeah. Uh, anyways. Um, and you can, like, talk about baseball again, and that's nice. Um, yeah. The shorter draft has pretty broad ripple effects. Um, because a lot of players that would otherwise... Uh, matriculate to the minor leagues are not doing so right um so one of the most interesting consequences is that uh, the npb is trying to sign players that didn't get drafted particularly mm. hard throwing pitchers uh-huh. um the teams are limited to uh they're allowed to sign undrafted free agents only to twenty thousand dollar bonuses um and the Japanese teams can offer, can, I don't know what, they don't have a limit, but they're purportedly going to offer $100,000 to $200,000 to some of these hard-throwing college kids that didn't get drafted, wow. uh, which could be really interesting. I think, I mean, good for the MPV. They're taking advantage of MLB being kind of in a, <laughs> in a bad place and really kind of stepping up to become more of a worldwide league, which I think is really cool. Yeah, I respect that a lot. That's really awesome. And I also wonder if... I mean, I, don't, I hope to God that coronavirus isn't gone forever. Uh, I wonder if a labor shortage in minor league baseball would give minor leaguers like a little bit more leverage to get their money. I don't like this is one. There's one not going to be a labor shortage. No, no, there's not enough. Uh, 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 I feel like a couple of years worth of limited drafts might um, turn the tide. But that seems very unlikely because I assume at some point we're going to get a vaccine for coronavirus. Well, they're all, they're going to contract the minor leagues too, and of course right. they can sign undrafted free agents for up to twenty thousand dollars. So a lot of those guys, you know, will still or get into the minor leagues. Something I just wonder. I don't know. I wonder. I feel like this is really only an issue in, uh, like Olympic level sporting events where like if you if you you know you have only one uh, one opportunity every four years, and so you'll hear stories about people who like, you know. They, they, they get injured one time, and that's kind of it for their Olympic career. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I'm... Hmm. I, I guess it... Uh, I, I wonder how it will affect people who... Like, do you think that all the people who were like, okay, 2020 is my year to get drafted, do you think they'll be back in 2021? A lot of them will be. So, I mean, uh, it's the, the, the toughest situation is for uh, college seniors. Right. who would otherwise have been drafted um, because there's also no indie ball to go to for them. Mm. Um, so they're pretty on the ropes. Maybe they go to a foreign league. Um, maybe they just don't play baseball. It's honestly the most likely thing. But it presents like a lot of rolling complications. Um, uh, juniors in college, they can sign for $20,000 or they can go back and hope to get drafted their next year. High schoolers, uh, they can go to a junior college, try and reenter the draft next year. But one of the interesting things is that, of course, way more kids than expected are going to go to college now and colleges have limited numbers of scholarships and Mm. because of the way the draft works they always offer more scholarships than they're actually able to provide so now they're having to rescind a bunch of scholarships which is obviously disastrous so a lot of high school kids are either going to have to switch colleges or um i mean i i don't even know what there are a lot of a lot of consequences of that 
Maybe this will further stratify call. I'm like in full on like predicting the future mode about everything right now for some reason. That's great. Uh, is it? I don't know. Yeah, uh, we call you Stradivarius. No, that's the musician. What's the Stradivarius. What's the guy called who predicts things? Nostradamus. Nostradamus. <laughs> <laughs> the future of violins. Um, maybe this will further stratify uh, uh, college baseball and will give junior colleges a, a more of a seat at the table. I don't really know what the table looks like, um, whether junior colleges want or need that. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm speculating on everything at this point. I don't know what it will look like. My inclination is that um, it'll be a weird log jam that yep. will have implications for several years, and I'll kind of forget about it. But it'll Sad. affect some people's lives forever. Meanwhile, in New Zealand, um, everyone's going to sporting events. There are zero cases of the coronavirus in New Zealand now. Everyone's yeah. done. Yeah. They've got yeah. temperate climate there, like yep. good weather. Um, the Lord of the Rings was filmed there. They have funny oh, that's accents. A good point. Yes, yeah. Um, their Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, seems like a real competent, respectable leader. They have comprehensive gun control. Comprehensive gun control. Seems pretty... It's an archipelago, pretty... which is, like, fun. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like they're, like, in, in a lot of ways, well-equipped to deal with these sort of viral outbreaks by Dinabee. They are an island. island. Yeah, yeah. That, that's helpful. Um, their winters sides. are our summers. That's kind of fun. They have hot that's Christmas. Weird. Yep. A lot, a lot of upside. Yeah. Want to talk about this book? Let's talk about the novel Summerland by Michael Chabon. Uh, yeah, I um, I would like to know your opinion of it. I will share my opinion later. I would like to know, this is your first time reading it, correct? Uh, uh, yeah, as I think I mentioned briefly in the last episode, I read some portion of it when I was a child um, and gave, on it, gave up on it for one reason or another. Uh, this time I, I made it all the way through. I had zero recollection of the book. I was oh. surprised to learn it was a fantasy novel. Like I, I literally didn't even uh, didn't know that. So that's wonderful. That's a great way to go into it. I think I love to not be spoiled by things, as you know. Uh, I don't yeah. even read book jackets. Um, my opinion of this book is that it is not very good. Oh no! Okay. Uh, you love the go book. On. No, go on. Same word. Uh, yeah, I um, I don't hate the book. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't an objectionable book. But throughout most of the course of it, I just found it not to be especially compelling or a driving narrative. I was shocked at how long it was, how many characters there were, um, and how, hmm. like, little I understood why why so many things needed to happen. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you know, there's this antagonist coyote in the novel who uh, doesn't travel according to any, uh, you know, particular um, direction. He could be going anywhere at any time, which I yeah. suppose is the justification for why it takes the heroes so long to go anywhere and they kind of go every which direction. Uh, and I felt it to be rather dragging because I didn't know... <laughs> when we were going to get to the end or why they were in any particular place that they were. Um, 
again, again, it wasn't terrible, and I thought there was some uh, some interesting thematic stuff uh, related to myth. Um, and I like that the main character is bad at baseball. <laughs> yes, but that's it. <sighs> it's interesting that you key on Coyote as being like a weak point because I also think that that's probably the novel's weakest point. Is that mm-hmm. I like the his motivation seemed not very clear in a way that was not sort of subtly winked at in the you know like you're identifying. Um, a character trait of the character Coyote, which is that he is sort of, I mean, he is the changer, so he's, like, fully unpredictable, and that's what kind of makes him scary, I guess. Yeah, I guess. Um, I w- he, gives but- a ne- he gives a monologue near the end of the novel about why he wants to destroy all worlds that I wish he had given in the first 100 pages of the book. I don't even remember the monologue. Um, I hated the end of the... I, okay, let me just... I'll, I will, I will start from the... Be- I, no, I'm sorry. I got ahead of myself. Um, and I, I just wanted to say that I um, read this book, I think, in like fourth grade for the first time. And uh, I think I identified with the main character too much at the time because I was also bad at baseball and not willing to give it a chance. Yeah. Um, and so I like I, myself was not changed at the time by the book because like I think I was just like so in my in that perspective and didn't didn't really feel compelled to grow from it at the time. And I think the reason why reading it back is because uh, I didn't find the ending very compelling or clear. Um, No, it it seems uh, to come out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, Like, yeah, I I totally agree with you. The, um, I mean, uh, that that being said, like all the stuff that like resonated with me in fourth grade resonated with me again um which is ultimately why i think this is like a special book to me mm-hmm. um because I, I i derived the same sorts of enjoyment out of it and even more now that i kind of better understand the things that he's referencing mm-hmm. um and uh, particularly i i like enjoyed like his play with myth um i think it's very well considered um and Obviously, it's very tempting to, like, if you're going to write a novel about, like, baseball as mythology, it, it'd be very, I mean, it's it's very tempting to, you know, uh, uh, have all of these sort of romantical and stereotypical ideas of what baseball is. Um, but I really did appreciate the consideration that was made for the fact that, like, Amer- like baseball as mythology is necessarily American mythology, and American mythology comes from all these disparate sources. Mm-hmm. Um and and in like it's like any any baseball mythology that's purely like oh like the chalk lines that go on and like the magic of the signs that the catcher puts down, um, you know that stuff would not come from a vacuum. Um, and so I, I, I really appreciated um, that he like did his homework and uh, represented what I thought was like a very full picture of a kind of America, uh, which I thought I, I I really appreciated that portion of the book. Uh, that's my opening statement. Um, w- one of the things that I guess I appreciated that makes me very wistful about the book is that it really makes me want to play baseball. Oh, for sure. Um, which is impossible, both as right. a person in quarantine and as like an adult. It's so hard to play baseball, which is weird considering that it is our national pastime 
that it's so relegated to children. You know, adults mm. can play soccer, um, they play pickup basketball, um, but when it comes to baseball, it's mostly softball. Yeah, there was that one league that I was joining up uh, before all this started that I, I think, I don't know when we talked about it last weather. I was still under the impression that it's a softball league, but it's it's a hardball baseball league, mm-hmm. um, which I'm still very excited about the prospect of joining up with when this is over. Yeah, uh, because oh, okay, this is tying back in nicely this idea that like baseball is primarily for children. I think, in a sense, with the question that you had towards the end of this show notes, which is. Um, how does Michael Shabon's uh, grief as a, a father of a a, a, a a dead child? That's a tough way of putting it, but uh, no, he he writes in the introduction to this uh, revised edition or new edition of the book about how the the novel is a response to uh, his wife having an abortion. Yes, um, and I think. So another a thing that grabbed me this time, particularly that I was just like not cognizant of, probably partially due to the fact that that introduction wasn't there in the edition that I had, but also m- probably more due to the fact that even if it I had identified what are you know there there are thematic nods to it in the book um, that again I was helped by uh, the introduction, but I feel like even if you hadn't read the introduction, the like subplot of i mean the 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 portion of the book that concerns ethan's relationship with his dead mother uh and also uh the portion of the book regarding um the uh farisher princess's brother um spider rose and nuba kaduba um i feel like even without the introduction there are parts of it where you would say like oh like among other things his head is in a place where he's thinking about like grief and and how to deal with losing uh, loved ones as a child and as a parent um, and but I think that what I really took away from the introduction um, this time was uh, sort of how much mm, more obvious magic becomes to people who are paying attention does that does that ring or should I keep talking or should I say more about it I think you should say more about that okay so um, he talks about it initially in the introduction um, as concerns like believing in fairies, right? And like the idea that like belief in fairies and fairy tales is something that takes work um, uh, to, to like sort of fully believe in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's this idea that like you only really notice, right? And that's that's also carried over into the novel where like, the only people who can see fairies are people who believe in fairies, right? So, like, you only notice fairies if you're paying attention is the idea, right? Yes. Um, and he makes this connection. It's 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 not ever... Like, I think it's it's ultimately what baseball is doing for the book um, is, is comes from that passage in the book that Ethan reads um, about how to be a good catcher. How to Catch uh, Lightning and Smoke. Lightning and Smoke, a very good title. Chapter 3. Uh, in, in my version of this ebook, it's page 73. Uh, the passage from um, 
what's his name e p vine or something yeah um e p vine's book how to catch lightning and smoke um the passages uh, p vine had first begun in his words to quote grasp the fundamental truth a baseball game is nothing but a great slow contraption for getting you to pay attention to the cadence of a summer day um which is beautiful um and i think ties back to the theme of like magic is something that you notice when you're paying attention um and if you are not paying attention then like everything that makes you special everything that that is like special about summertime and i think that like you could connect this to like what happens to bruce feld when he's just like working for coyote without the joy that he has for his work um is that he ceases to be himself um and so the the one thing that i would like to say about that is that i, I think that it is the closest to a encapsulating how i feel about going to a baseball game honestly or even just like watching a baseball game on tv um it's something that when i learned that it was satisfying to like sit and pay attention to this slower thing um something that i I placed a lot of value in uh when i had the opportunity to sit down and like spend three or four hours just like you know watching um and learning and stuff um the other thing is that i think that it so the that's the a the b is that i think that it is a very earned way of saying that like there is magic in baseball um to have this connection between like fairy tales and baseball uh in this way is um makes this this idea seem like less of a stereotype or or like less of a cheap sort of um baseball ideal um but i also think that it uh is maybe a good allegory for handling grief just because um i think when we are sad we give up on like paying attention to ourselves and our surroundings first like it can become very easy to just kind of like retreat within yourself when you're sad um and possibly when you're grieving i've never grieved like a very difficult loss so i don't know exactly what that would be like i mean i've i've certainly like lost people in my life but there are people who frankly like had lived full lives um but like this idea that like in hard times that you retreat in in yourself and then you miss things uh you become less of a person you become more of a bruce feld uh as he sort of as his arc progresses throughout the book um and so the idea that the, the like it'd be very difficult to resist that 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 impulse and i think that that's something that he expresses that he learned uh in mourning his his child uh is that like baseball helped him get through it because it was something that he could uh do every day and like read the 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 post gamers and the box scores and you know just like be aware of all of the transactions and and the like team narratives throughout the season um was just something to keep him engaged and uh that's a magical thing you know yeah baseball has a special way of being 
deeply engaging that I think maybe other sports don't mm. um, in, in, in the way that they capture the cadence of a summer day and, and an entire summer. Um, it's so mm. easy. And in Shaban's introduction, you know, he talks about following the entire season closely. And I think that there's, I mean, for one thing, the, the fact that at least Major League Baseball happens every day um, is really a, a distinct feature of it. Right. Um, it's very steady. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a, I, I feel like, yeah, you're right. That's, that's a, I, I think, I think it's very easy to, to identify that as like a bug and like a, it's easy to get into a place where you're like, baseball is boring. It happens every day, but yeah, when it's going like that is, that's the, that really is the thing where you like wake up every day and read the post gamers and yeah, I mean, there's there's a whole world to it, and I guess it's true of other sports too. But it's it's a cliche, but baseball is a, a very strategic and relatively slow game, um, and you can put a certain kind of mental energy into it. Um, I think I just I appreciated that like he saw that value and expressed that value very elegantly. I think beautifully, uh, inspirationally. Oh, I didn't like the ending though. I felt like he didn't really know how he was supposed to end it. So the 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 book is <clears throat> concerned with uh Ethan Feld, Jennifer T, and a group of ne'er do wells they pick up along the way. Um <laughs> attempting I to I think stop that's why it needed to be so long. Sorry. Because they needed to have enough people to fill out a baseball team. Yeah. I absolutely <laughs> feel that way. I, I, I feel that the the book was just trying to be long enough to introduce enough characters to have a baseball team. Yeah, which is cute. I think. I don't know. Same. Let's 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 arrive to the end of this point, and then maybe we can wrap around on it. Go back to that. Um, they're all trying to prevent the malicious changer, uh, coyote, from ending not just the middling world, our world. But all four of the worlds that spring forth from the lodgepole, the world tree, uh, which is an idea borrowed both from Norse and Native American mythology, uh, among others. Um, And uh, they do that uh, at the end of the book by playing a baseball game against them. Uh, In the background the whole time, there is concern about an apocalyptic event called Ragged Rock, um, which is just Ragnarok, but said in a more american way which i appreciate right. it's kind of an americanized version of a of a norse myth um and uh at the end of the novel ethan punches a home run into the sky and releases ragged rock uh all at once with not a ton of justification i think there's no indication that that this that this climactic baseball game actually has much to do with the threat of ragged rock until it happens at once and we also don't know what it entails until a bunch of people are cured of cancer all of a sudden yeah it yeah the mechanism by which i mean the mechanism by which uh coyote had sort of planned to bring about ragged rock which involved like kidnapping ethan's engineer of a father and using like some earth science uh didn't seem like it was very well contrived and so i think the resolution was ultimately unsatisfying for that reason yeah, I mean, I'm confused about this, but I think that Ragged Rock is a separate thing from what Coyote was trying to do. 
Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. Ethan ends up causing Ragged Rock, which winds up being a purifying flood, which is another idea, of course, borrowed from myth. Um, whereas Coyote wanted to poison the roots of the tree and, um, you know, create an entire new world. Like, his thing was that he had wanted to uh, 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 start it over in his image. Yes, which, again, he only reveals at the very end of the book, which I think would have been really helpful. Obviously, like, Coyote is just, he's literally Satan. There's actually a discussion about how he is Satan. So he, he's just evil incarnate. Well, that, regardless. Um, well, okay, yeah, I'm not saying that he is pure evil, but he is evil incarnate, which I think is distinct. Uh, even that's difficult, though, because there's, like, there are instances in the book of... I mean, there's there's tons of acknowledgement of the fact that like he's responsible for things that people love. Yes, well, uh, notably, he invented baseball, among other things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and also, not only is that the case, but it also seems to be something that he's appreciated for in the wider world to some extent, right? Like, I, it's like a passing moment. It's another thing that like I really wish that he had dug into because it's something that I like noticed on this reading as like a grown up that I wouldn't have caught the first time and I was really like looking for it to resolve more than it did um there were like passing moments when when it would mention that like Sinkfoil who is uh the chief of one of the um the Farisher or like fairy mobs um and also is the home run king of three worlds which I think is very funny um uh, has like the, there's this passing moment where it's observed that he like admires Coyote to some extent, mm-hmm. um, and that like there are a bunch of people who like are not as um, pressed, I guess. Like the, it's not as big a deal to some people in this book, or to some like I don't know, you know, fair folk or whatever in this book as as it seems to the children whose goal it is to stop it. Um, that didn't really, that wasn't really explored, uh, and I think ultimately he just kind of fell back on, yeah, that idea of Coyote as evil incarnate without considering those complications. Um, Coyote, um, is one of the most common unifying shared myths among the indigenous population of the Americas. Um, writ large, which is interesting. You know, a lot of times um, Native Americans are grouped and say, oh, Native Americans, uh, this, they have this myth, when of course it is um, a a huge geography of different people. But one of the more common myths is about this character, Coyote, and um, one of the interpretations of him is that he stole fire from the gods and brought it down to people, um, which I think is referenced in Summerland as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that's that also happens in in one of the Norse myths. Um, but regardless, that's he is also yeah he is he is chaotic and evil and yeah. loves flames. But of course, humans need need the fire uh, to make good things. Um, and to Shabon's credit, uh, that is notably uh, a feature of uh, the myths of the Salation, the Salition. I'm not sure actually. Uh, peoples who are the the Native Americans of the Pacific Northwest and the peoples uh, that Jennifer T is descended from. Oh, Cilician. Sorry, it's pronounced Cilician. Cilician, thank you. Yeah. Um, But I cut you off and went on a tangent again. I'm really sorry. Um, I was saying that um, that Coyote's evil 
Yeah. Um, uh, and his plan, uh, that that his plan is is distinct from Ragnarok. That his plan is just to kill um, everyone, whereas not Ragnarok, Ragged Rock is a purifying phenomenon. Yeah, I, I didn't like. I don't know. I didn't. I didn't track that portion of the book <laughs> at all. Uh, 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 if like maybe it just like didn't work out the way he thought it was going to happen, and ultimately it was just like the universe that foiled his plan. Yeah. So at the end of the book, um, Ethan hits a home run into the sky, and he opens up this fourth world that has been sealed off since Coyote. Mm. Um, severed all of the galls, which are the intersecting points between branches of the the world tree, um, and the gleaming, which is some kind of mysterious godly realm, opens up. And Coyote is so terrified of it that he forfeits his game, um, decides that it's not it, it's worth abandoning all of his plans, um, and ultimately that's because uh, this force of ragged rock is for good. It it cures a lot of things. Um, and Coyote's afraid. He's afraid of, of the goodness that Ethan has wrought. Yeah, and then there's just this whole epilogue that's, um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. There was, there, it seemed like there was a need to, like, have some resolution in the real world. Yeah. Um, so, I, yeah, have, I mean, like... I don't, I, I don't like it either. You don't like it. You called it corny. But, yeah. I mean, ultimately, this, this ragged rock myth um, connects to other myths of a great flood, which are common. Tim, you and I talked about this earlier today. We talked about Noah's Ark and Gilgamesh. Um, but uh, in most mythologies, uh, the great flood comes with enormous consequence. Um, and in Shaban's interpretation, it's just good for everybody. Yeah, I think that that might have been, I mean, the consequence of him writing a YA novel and not really wanting to, uh, like, acknowledge how complicated the flood myth is. Like, it's a purifying thing, right? And, like, it ends with, or at least Noah's Ark does. I, I, I still need to learn more about the Epic of Gilgamesh. Uh, but Noah's Ark ends with, like, an agreement that, like, this, you know, this is only going to happen one more time and it's going to be worse next time. Uh Mm, yeah, I'm not sure about Gilgamesh. I don't know, but I, I don't if know. That's but, part you know, of there's that, that symbol of the rainbow is there, um, and it's probably not something. Um, I, I don't know. Having spent like 500 pages already tangling with this material of like what what is the end of the world, um, you know, it, it seems like it might be more comfortable for children to just be like, it's good, and then we just keep keep, keep going forever not really questioning uh what happens after the end of the world happens uh yeah it doesn't even seem like it actually made that big of a difference <laughs> yeah it's like um, a couple good things uh, per, per, per shabon the further you are from the roots of the world tree um or the the lodge pole the less pronounced the effects are because they're having this baseball game right at the very at the, at the trunk right um is baseball the American myth in this book? Yeah, I think so. Because there's, I mean, I, 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 you know, it's certainly like, I don't, I don't think that yes is the wrong answer. Um, but I also think that modern American or like more modern American myths are represented pretty 
substantially um as 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 portrayed by the big liars um who count mm-hmm. among them like john henry uh who is a steel driving man uh pecos bill there. is there yeah and there are some uh, some other folks that i had not heard of but that are apparently just as much a part of like the american oral yeah uh, uh mythology um, yeah of course and they're all huge oh what's his face is there what's his name yeah i'm trying to think of his name he has the big babe the big blue ox yeah his name is paul bunyan thank you um, um yeah i hadn't heard of a lot of these guys but apparently all of them are supposed to have been huge there is a whole a whole uh category of american myths about men who are enormous do you know about picos bill no i know uh, his name because picos bill i know about because i had like a picture book that came with a book on cd that was read by robin williams um about picos bill and it, it really is just like it's like John Henry or Paul Bunyan, but for like the Southwest and like cowboys. Mm-hmm. Um, it's cool. It's 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 again like it's acknowledging the fact that that like baseball as mythology doesn't come from nowhere. Uh, that there are like a bunch of cultures that build up uh, into making America and like the stories of America what they are, mm-hmm. um, including aren't there like some like. Isn't there some discussion of, like, the Chinese and Irish people who built railroads in this book? Oh, I don't remember I'm that. Just, like, That'd be interesting. vaguely remembering it. Um, but he also touches on, like, I mean, apart from, like, you know, like, black storytelling tradition, uh, uh, that sort of, like, Midwestern, which is, I guess, like, American Norse almost when you think about what Paul Bunyan comes from, mm-hmm. is a storytelling tradition. Um, uh, you know, like, cowboy tall tales. Uh, and then, like, your Native American mythology, uh, your fairy tale, storytelling methods. Um, are you arguing against the idea of baseball as mythology by saying that there are other American mythologies in the book? I'm saying that, like, baseball seems to be the common thing among all of these storytelling traditions that are kind of coming together um, in this sort of mishmash kind of high-level fantasy story mm-hmm. um, that makes me think of baseball as less of an American myth and more of just as, like, a vehicle for storytelling in a way. Um, yeah, I, I, think, I think baseball is the, the binding structure of the American myth in this book. Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's baseball itself is a sport, not a myth. No, um, but, but Shabon elevates like... it. He he puts it alongside these depictions of North Norse and Native American myths, uh, which I it's interpret like the... as his effort to elevate it to the status of American myth to say that baseball is uh, at the same level as these other stories, as these other mechanisms I... for telling stories. I like. I I don't know. I think it's just doing something slightly different like it's not it's like the language and the context that he uses to tie all the stories together right like every every person and like being in his fairy tale universe from all traditions play baseball um because baseball is the thing that makes you pay attention and that's where magic comes from 
But that's uh, also a representation of American myth, right? I mean, the whole one of one of the driving points of the the novel is that American myth, the American story, is the coming together of different cultural traditions, and oh. baseball is representative of that. That's a satisfying conclusion to that that little. Um, I don't know, dis 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 disruption, conversation, something, conversation, topic, sure. <laughs> uh, interesting. Um, did I have anything else on this? There's a Sasquatch. There are giants. I my favorite character who I forgot about was Grimalkin Jim, John Grimalkin John. Mm-hmm. They call him Grim. Uh, I, I it's very funny. Uh oh. Um, Shaban does voices. Um, this is why I, so I read some reviews of this and like, on like Goodreads and there was like a New York times review of it when it came out and like a bunch of people bashed I read that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and like that, uh, you know, talking about it further, there's plenty of reasons to be critical of it. It's, it's, it's a, it's a choice, uh, for a, a Pulitzer prize winning novelist. I think he is. I wouldn't be shocked. Cavalier and Clay was his big one. If anyone were to win a Pulitzer Prize, it would be that one. Yeah, uh, but I think Cavalier, came, I think that came out after this. No, it did not. Really? Yeah, Cavalier and Clay came out in 2000, and uh, Summerlin came out in 2002. So this was coming off of Cavalier and Clay. This was his next novel. Well, his next novel was uh, Yiddish Policeman's Union, and then he wrote this one. He wrote three novels in three years? I believe so, yeah. But he said uh, in the intro that writing this novel in a year was the fastest he ever wrote a book. I <laughs> something's that up here. Maybe you're right about that. Maybe he like maybe it, maybe I'm misremembering. He had definitely come thing. out with Yiddish Policeman's Union before this. It did win the Pulitzer Prize. Um, yeah, okay. I'm not surprised that he's won the Pulitzer Prize. Cavalier and Clay, uh, good novel. I like that one more than this one. I've never read it. I think that I should. Um, Yiddish Policeman's Union didn't come out until 2007, so this was the book that, that directly huh, followed okay. the Pulitzer Prize, uh, and I think that that probably, like, created a lot of pressure for it to be, like, very literary and, like, a huge home run and whatever uh, that he was going to be, what, like, because in the introduction he talks about J.K. Rowling. Yeah. Um, um, and having, like, been inspired by listening to Harry Potter on tape. Um, and so I Which think I that, think like, we can all relate to. Yeah. Uh, a lot of pressure on this book to be something that it maybe isn't. Um, I think that to the extent that he does do some like literary metaphor work, it's pretty successful. The plotting isn't amazing, um, but it's I so think long, Tim. <laughs> it's so long, and a lot of it is not actually uh, very clear, especially towards the end. Um, but I think that like as a study of fairy tales and as like a fairy tale itself, I think it's very successful. Uh, and ultimately as a YA novel, I think it's, it's like exceptional. I mean, again, like the ending is like, what, like why? Um, but for most, for the most part, I feel like it would be a fun book to read as a kid. Um, but it's just like a fairy tale ultimately, uh, what a dunce that I am. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I keep doing this. Oh, he does the voices. That's what I wanted to talk about. It's a really wonderful kids book, I think, and uh, driven home by the fact that uh, I, I had a drive to and from the Jersey Shore uh, yesterday and back today, 
I, I drove to yesterday and from today. Uh-huh. Um, so I finished the book on the on route both to and from um, on audiobook on my drive. Um, and the experience to me of listening to an audiobook on the way to the beach is, um, you know, pleasant. It, it, it's, 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 I would have, I, it's very, it's very possible that I would have listened to this audiobook on the way to the beach in fourth grade. I didn't, mm-hmm. but it's, it's possible that it's, it's that kind of book, um, that w- might have been in the rotation. Um, so that was nostalgic. And, um, I thought that it was a very successful, um, experience and made complete by the fact that Shaban reads it a and B, uh, does the voices of all the characters. Uh, can I ask you a question that I was wondering about uh, when I read yeah. the book? What are yeah. his uh, depictions of the voices of Sharon Brown and um, Buen, uh, what's his name, Ricardo Buendia? R- Rodrigo Buendia. Rodrigo excellent Buendia. Question. Yes. Excellent, excellent question. Lightly racist is the answer. Okay, because they're um, also racist in the text of the book. Yes. Um, <laughs> that's something that I had uh, I remembered. Um, I, I, like, I had remembered the fact that there was a a Negro League player in the book um, and then I sort of forgotten about it and then I read Telegraph Avenue not that long ago and I was like oh Michael Shabon has like a thing about black characters I forgot about that yeah um, yeah lightly racist uh, unfortunately um, I make no excuse for it it's really weird um, and it's 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 perhaps the the if there is a drawback to him doing the voices for all of this <laughs> it's that um because the rest of it is just like good fairy tale voice work. Like it, it sounds like a dad reading a story to his kids, which I really appreciated. The racism aside, which I did not appreciate. Um, but like, Sinkfoil sounds like John Wayne. Um, he does like, uh, kind of like a surfy uh, voice for Rob Padfoot. He has a little something for Coyote. I think that, like, the places where he sort of gets his characters m- mishmashed into each other is sort of cute and funny, and it's failing. Like, its imperfection is is, is effective. Because mm, he's not a professional voiceover artist. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he's just a guy who's who's trying to come up with voices for all of these, like, kids particularly, I think, is he kind of has trouble with um, Ethan and Jennifer T, distinguishing them a lot of times. Um I think that's um. I'm. It must be very instructive to hear the the voices that he comes up with for people. It does because when I read He's the author, I had read the first half of it and was thinking that there were more racist characters, like in his writing, than ultimately uh, came through in the in the reading of it. Like all of the Farisher language is sort of bad grammar English. Um, yeah, and those characters I think are most closely connected to. Native Americans. Uh, yes, definitely. In his imagining. Um, and so at the time I was like, huh? Huh? Yeah, no, yeah. They're definitely allegories for Native Americans. Um, but they, they're they transliterated kind of like Southerners to me. That's how he reads. Well, that's how he reads. That's how he reads Sinkfoil. And that's the most prominent yeah. uh, Farisher character. Um, but I think the thing... A, I think the sort of sleeper candidate for most successful voice in the audiobook reading, and B, 
the thing that kind of sold me on the idea that like it's cute that he's not a professional voice actor doing this um was the voice that he did for queen fillery um which was just like um a very dignified sort of falsetto uh he sounded just like a fancy fancy lady um which I think is it's not it's not too complicated, but it's it's kind of just right for that character. Um, that was my favorite part of yeah. the book. I I I I I I I mean, this time around was my favorite part of the book. I, I have a hard time getting on board with the um, the like inciting events, the leading up to the ending being too long, because I mm-hmm. think I just like really enjoyed the worlds that he let them explore in. Um, and, um, I really liked the Dandelion Hill gang and like everything that happened there. It introduced Grimalk and John, who's another one of my favorite characters this time around. Um, and there was something about how, like, there was just something to the fact that they played croquet and tennis and were so dissatisfied at having to play croquet and tennis, um, (laughs) because they could no longer play baseball. Uh, yeah, that I I just found very humorous because they are such boring games, even more so than baseball. But they're also kind of similar to baseball in a way. Um, they're all sports. They're all ball hitting with object sports. That's true. That's fair, huh? Um, but like tennis and croquet are a like less popular. B more popular with like boring rich people and C are boring. And I just like that depiction uh, of those characters. And (laughs) there's a bit where like Queen Fillory is like talking about how they have, they've like been debating like the fate of the kids because they had taken the kids captive. captive. Yeah. Um, And they were debating their fate. And then at one point she's like, we need to take a break and go like play. Uh, And she says like, would that it were nine innings of baseball, uh, but we have to play tennis and croquet instead. Um, I just really enjoyed that section. Uh, yeah. Is there any, and then it got really confusing when they had to tunnel their way out of the cell. Um, Yeah. They just kind of, I don't know. It was convenient because they needed another player for their baseball team. But I was also thinking about how weird it was that they just like introduced a rat, um, like that guy was just a character all of a sudden without really any yeah and he just lived in the wall i guess right um, um it's just kind yeah. of just needed a character so we put a character in there uh yep 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 yeah anything else you want to talk about for this one um <clears throat> i actually put it in my notes here that oh. uh, indeed there is a norse god who stole fire from the other gods and it's loki coyote oh there so you go. that makes sense yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Coyote then uh, invokes himself as Loki at one point. And Satan and Prometheus. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's all very uh, Hollywood. Yeah, it's fun. It's um, the, yeah. I think the fair thing about the New York Times review of it was that it, it referred to it as like a novelization of an animated feature, um, which I, th- I think I was like, again, I objected to because I, th- I think that like the episodic nature of it is very nice for like an epic novel. Um but the like pains that he goes to to describe Ethan's like last Mustang League baseball game in the epilogue is like this. I understand why it's there. It would work a lot better in a movie, because um, I don't know. 
it's a lot to describe a lot of baseball. It takes a lot. Yeah. And I, I think that yeah, he, yeah, yeah. he had a really nice um, device for getting around describing most of the baseball, which was fun. Yeah, I'm reminded of Ethan's watch, which I found super frustrating. You didn't like his watch? No, I hate his watch. Why? His dad made him this fancy watch that, for some reason, um, as they're approaching the end of the world, is counting up the innings. Yeah. And he's like, oh, no, it's going to be the bottom of the night soon. There's no justification for why the watch does that. Um, and I didn't feel any dramatic tension because it didn't tick down in what felt like a consistent way to me. It was just like, that's oh, the second. Now it's the eighth inning. Like, yeah. it, didn't, it didn't introduce dramatic tension to me at all. And then two-thirds of the way through the book, it goes blank. And they're like, I guess we lost, but they didn't at all. I, I, <laughs> I felt it was completely failed and annoying device. Wonderful criticism. Um, mm. Yeah, I think yeah. That, that you hit the nail on the head with that one. I think that it's weird. I think uh, that probably there needed it needed that kind of tension, um, and so that was like that like countdown tension needed to be there, and so it was added in the most literal way that it possibly could be. Um, yeah, but that's not where the tension needed to come from. The tension needed to come from like some sense of what Coyote is doing, where he is in that process, why it's taking him so long. And they start adding that at the end with Bruce Feld developing the material, I guess. But it never felt to me like, why? how do Ethan and the gang know where they're heading, why they're heading there, what time frame they're on? Like, I really, I wanted more of what Coyote's plan was and how they're trying to stop it. Yeah, and that kind of is the whole of the novel, so you would really want that to be beefed up, wouldn't you? I would. Because that's the only reason that they're going on a journey is that his dad's been kidnapped. And yeah. apparently it's going to be the end of the world. Um, Which, to the credit of the novel, is incidental to the characters also. They don't care as much about that. Yeah, I just kind of, I think at long last, and like again, like there are parts of this book that like are, I, are very, like I treasure. Uh, and I'll probably revisit this book at some point because I, I had a pleasurable time reading it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, it, 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 it succeeded and it failed. Um, it seemed like it was difficult to get the story where it needed to go. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, it's very warm and I turned my fan off, but I'm kind of running out of gas. <laughs> uh, all right. Yeah. All right. Bad. Bad end. We'll have to make up for it with the uh, uh, a peppy reading of a snake fact, <sighs> which is that earlier this month, Florida conservationist Mike the Python Cowboy Kimmel fought and ultimately caught a python weighing about 150 pounds and measuring more than 17 feet long. Uh, I think that Python Cowboy is like, like I don't kneel to the Tiger King, but I, like I could get behind a Python Cowboy. Um, yeah, I mean, at least he is catching and killing invasive species. Yeah. Not my favorite thing in the world, but, you know, he's more Carol Baskin than Joe Exotic. Yeah, um, and also... When he caught this... Ooh, keep going. When he caught this python, it bit him right in his elbow in the artery. He's just bleeding everywhere. It's, like, horrifying. Is there video? Yeah, it's on his YouTube channel. 
That's what I, I didn't linked to. I realize what that link was. I, I, I thought it was just like an <laughs> article. All right, here we go. It's a long video. I don't <laughs> Oh, it's 15 minutes long. Yeah, I don't need to watch all that. Maybe I'll watch it later and tweet my reaction to it. I think I think it's on his Instagram, too. Okay. Um, you can see just the, the part of his elbow bleeding, like, a disturbing amount of blood. I didn't even know that pythons were biters. Um, all I was going to say is that I think it's un-American to, to name yourself as a king of anything. Um, but there's nothing more American than a cowboy. Um, which is why Mike Python Cowboy Kimmel is my president. Yeah, mine too. I just voted for him in the New York City municipal elections. Congratulations. I had to write him in. Thank you. Uh, so yeah, that's going to do it for us uh, this week on Tater Tots. Uh, next episode, uh, which will be two weeks from now, we will uh, uh, have a brief update on the jumping, uh, but we will spend, I guess, more of that segment time talking about what we learned uh, in pre-calculus. Uh, and, uh, we'll be reading, uh, Jackie Robinson's autobiography, which is entitled, I Never Had It Made. Um, in the meantime, you can, uh, as always, donate to Baseball for All, um, which is an initiative that gets youth girls involved in baseball programs around the country. That's very important. You can follow us on Twitter at Tater Tots Pod. You can like us on Facebook, behind the Facebook URL slash Tater Tots Pod. You can email us at tatertotspod at gmail.com, and you can join us weekly uh, we missed you last week, sorry. Uh, but normally, uh, weekly, uh, on twitch.tv slash tatertotspod, Thursday nights at 7 Eastern. Is it still daylight savings time? I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. know. 7 Eastern, 4 Pacific. Uh, that wouldn't change that. No, but, you know, I see EST, PST uh, places, and I feel like I'm just, like, accustomed to writing that. And, and recently I wrote it for like a tweet or something and i was like is it standard time or is it daylight time right now um it doesn't matter it's it when when it's seven o'clock what yeah that must yeah you're supposed to change that to edt and pdt yeah i'm i'm i just realized what that middle letter stands for and i'm gonna take it out i'm gonna go etpt from now on yeah, it's, 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 you know, when it is 7 o'clock, look at your uh, telephone, which is connected to the internet, look at your watch, which hopefully you wound recently, um, and when the clock reads 7, uh, if you're on the East Coast, 6 if you're in the Midwest, 5 if you're in the Mountain Zone, and 4 if at long last you are on the Pacific Coast. What if uh, you're in Hawaii? I don't know. I'm sorry. Off the top of my head, I don't know. It, I think it's noon. Is it really? Wow. Seven hour it's difference? Really, it's really, it's so far away. What time is it in Hawaii? It is three o'clock, so there's a. It's another hour past Pacific. Six hour well. difference, so it's yeah. So it's one p.m. if you're in Hawaii. But check us out on Twitch. Is the point? Uh, next week again, Jackie Robinson's autobiography. I never had it made. And until that time, uh, talk to you later. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Thank you.